Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. Genesis 1 contains the account of God creating the heavens and the earth in six days. And when you read through the creation account, you'll notice a repetition of certain phrases. For example, all six of the creation days begin with the phrase, then God said. And likewise, all six of the creation days end with the phrase, so the evening and the morning were the blank day, the first day, the second day, the third day, and so on. Whenever you see repetition in the Bible, know that it's there for a reason. God never repeats words simply for the sake of repeating them. There's always a purpose, a reason why God would repeat himself. And in Genesis 1, the repetition is clearly delineating what God did on each of the days of creation. It shows that he created in an orderly and organized manner. And because of the repetition, we can read through Genesis 1 and have no doubts about what God did on each of the six days. There's another repetition in Genesis 1 as well. Consider the phrase, according to its kind. On the third day, when God created vegetation on the earth, it says that, uh, it says three times in, 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 on the third day, three times that the grass, herbs, and fruit trees will reproduce according to their kind. Then on the fifth day, when God made the birds and the sea creatures, it states twice that they will reproduce after their own kind. And then again on the sixth day, when God made the cattle and everything that creeps upon the earth, it says five times that they will reproduce after their own kind or according to their own kind. Then God, that God would repeat this phrase 10 times in Genesis 1 should indicate to us that this is an important piece of information. Uh, The Lord is driving home the point that he has established an immutable law that governs the way his creation reproduces. Dogs do not give birth to cats. Birds do not hatch from fish eggs. And when you plant a pumpkin seed, you don't get a rose bush. Everything reproduces according to its own kind. Now for the vast majority of human history, this has been a universally accepted truth. Yet in the past couple hundred years, the theory of naturalistic evolution has challenged this truth. Evolutionary theory postulates that uh, living things do not always produce after their own kind. We're told that redwood trees came from algae, chickens came from dinosaurs, and humans came from apes. And it should be evident from our sermon text that the Apostle Paul was not an evolutionist. Uh, Notice how he mentions sowing and reaping in verse 7. He writes, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Now, I think most of us, when hearing this or reading this, immediately understand that Paul is using sowing and reaping as a metaphor. Uh, Because this is such a common metaphor, we typically don't give much consideration to the agricultural claim uh, that's being made here in verse seven. Uh, Nobody says, wait a minute, 
Are you trying to tell me that if I sow watermelon seeds in the ground, then watermelon plants are gonna grow? That's not even within the scope of consideration that the point, uh, for the point that Paul is making here in verse seven. Paul presumes that everybody who's reading his epistle already knows that seeds sown in the ground will always reproduce according to their own kind. This is an immutable law of nature that the Lord established during the creation week, as we've already seen, and everybody knows it. So Paul is not teaching his readers how to plant a garden. Rather, he's using a horticultural metaphor to teach how sin and righteousness reproduce in our lives. In other words, the Galatians already knew how the law of sowing and reaping functions in natural matters, but they were ignorant of how the same law functions in spiritual matters. They knew that if you want to reap watermelons, then you need to sow watermelon seeds. But they mistakenly thought that they can sow seeds of sin in their lives and reap a harvest of righteousness. So Paul is challenging them on this very point. And notice the challenge he presents in verse seven. He warns them not to be deceived, which is understandable. You would expect Paul to say something like that. If they think they can sow one thing and reap another thing, that's a form of deception. And so it's not surprising that Paul says, don't be deceived. But then he adds the statement, God is not mocked. In Greek, the verb that's translated in English as mocked means to turn up one's nose in contempt. So Paul is warning the Galatians that it's showing contempt for the Lord when they ignore or reject or choose not to believe that God has established order within his creation. Anyone who refuses to believe that they'll reap what they sow is mocking God, according to verse seven. They're turning up their nose at God, expressing their contempt and disdain for him. And Paul is warning, that doesn't work with God. You can't show contempt for God and get away with it. He's going to let, uh, he, uh, he's, he's not gonna let that happen. Paul continues his warning in verse eight, making sure that the readers understand the spiritual implications of what he's saying. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. And Paul has already defined the terms flesh and spirit in the previous chapter. Uh, we're picking up right here in, verse, in, in chapter six, but if we went back to, to chapter five, Paul has already defined what the flesh and the spirit are. The flesh refers to the corrupt human nature that all people possess because of, because of sin, being born in sin, because of the, the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of total depravity. And the spirit refers to the newness of life believers possess because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul writes about the person who sows to his flesh, he's writing about the person who lives in the corruption of sin. And that, uh, it's the person whose life is ruled by the sinful impulses that are inherent to their fallen condition. And the warning is that if you sow the seeds of sin in your life, then you can be sure that you're going to reap the consequences of your sin. 
Now it's worth noting that the tense and voice of the verb to sow depicts a person who makes a habit of sowing in his flesh or makes a habit of sowing uh, to the spirit. Uh, This is not describing the person who sows to his flesh in an irregular manner or sows to the spirit only on rare occasions. No, this is describing the person who sows consistently and persistently. One Bible translator suggested that to emphasize the the proper connotation of this verb, it should be repeated three times in our English translations. So verses seven and eight would read like this, for whatever a man sows, 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 that he will also reap. For he who sows, sows, sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows, sows, sows to the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. Now, I said a moment ago that Paul had already defined what he means by the flesh and the spirit in the previous chapter. If, if you go back to Galatians 5.19 and you begin reading through the, the works of the flesh that Paul listed there, you'll come away with a good understanding of what it means to sow, sow, sow to the flesh. For example, one of the works of the flesh listed there is drunkenness. Uh, the warning in our sermon text is uh, not that if you drank too much once or twice in your life, then you are going to reap the bitter and painful harvest of the alcoholic. But it is a warning, our sermon text is a warning to the person who routinely gets drunk. Paul is warning the person who habitually sows the seeds of intoxication in his life. He's saying, Paul is saying, don't be deceived. You'll reap what you sow. If you're sowing the seeds of intoxication, you will reap a very bitter harvest. Outbursts of wrath is another work of the flesh that's listed in chapter five. This is not to say that if if you've ever lost your temper, then you're gonna reap an awful harvest of punishment from the Lord. But Paul is saying that if anger is your habitual response when things do not go your way, then you should be trembling in in your shoes. Why? Well, because you're going to reap what you have sowed, sowed, sowed. Contentions are another work of the flesh, Paul lists in chapter five. If you're habitually disagreeable or you're always arguing with people, then you're going to reap the consequences of your sin. Do you see how that works? We can go back to Galatians 5. We can go through every one of the, 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 the uh, sins of the flesh listed there, and we can apply this principle that Paul is teaching us in our sermon text. When you habitually sow, sow, sow those things, those sins of the flesh, you will then reap the consequences of corruption. And the focus is on the habits however, not just that somebody did something once or twice, but the focus is on the habits that are the characteristic of your thoughts, words, and deeds. Now, somebody uh, might go back and look at that list in Galatians 5 and wonder about the sin of adultery. Adultery is the first one listed in verse 19, the first sin of the flesh in verse 19. And since the warning of our, of our sermon text is against those who sow to the flesh repetitively and habitually, 
we should uh, uh, perhaps ask the question, uh, should we conclude that the person who only commits adultery once or twice does not need to be concerned about reaping a terrible harvest? Well, to answer this question, we need to define adultery. Uh, If you're defining adultery as voluntary relations between a married person and a person who's not his or her spouse, then that's a a very narrow definition. If that's what you think adultery is, then I need to inform you that the Bible gives a a broader definition than this. Uh, The Bible's definition of adultery includes, as we've seen earlier already in today's worship service, adultery which is committed within the heart as well as adultery which is committed in the flesh. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now I submit to you that the man or woman who becomes physically involved in an adulterous relationship, according to the narrow definition, will have already established a persistent pattern of sowing the seeds of adultery according to the biblical definition. In other words, don't make the mistake of thinking that God only counts the physical act to be adultery. The physical act is simply the predictable result of a progression of adultery that first began with lustful thoughts. For however long, that person was entertaining thoughts and ideas that should have been mortified the moment they reared their ugly head. But because those adulterous thoughts and ideas were not put to death, uh, they conceived and gave birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, resulted in the physical act of adultery. So when the question is asked whether a person who only commits adultery once or twice needs to be concerned about reaping the terrible harvest that Paul is warning about, that depends on the definition that we're using. If the question assumes the biblical definition of adultery, then the answer is no. The person who infrequently entertains lustful thoughts in his heart, but then responds by plucking out his eye and cutting off his hand, such a person need not be afraid of reaping the terrible harvest. But this is uh, because this is not the habitual, persistent sowing, sowing, sowing that Paul was warning about. This is not to say that infrequent sin is okay or that it's not serious. No, it is serious. All sin is serious. All sin must be dealt with by confessing it and forsaking it. But infrequent, inconsistent, non-habitual sin doesn't fit the pattern of sowing, sowing, sowing that Paul was warning about in our sermon text. That's the point I'm making. But if we ask that same question uh, according to the narrow definition of adultery, the person only engaged in a, in a physical act once or twice, then scripture makes it very clear that such a person needs to be highly concerned about reaping a terrible harvest because if they properly assess their heart, they're gonna see a habitual pattern of adulterous thoughts and ideas that go way, way back and have eventually led up to where they are, where they've committed the the physical act of adultery. And even if a person never proceeds or advances to the physical act, but 
habitually sows these sinful seeds of lustful thought within their heart, th- this person needs to be concerned about a terrible harvest as well. The person who's repetitively engaged in pornography is sowing the seeds of adultery within his heart. He needs to be concerned, highly concerned, about reaping a terrible and awful harvest of corruption because God is not mocked. God will not be mocked, brothers and sisters. What a man sows, 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 that he will also reap. He may not reap it today, he may not reap it tomorrow, but he will eventually reap a terrible and dreadful harvest in his life. Look at Samson. Did he sow to his flesh? Yes, he did. His relationship with Delilah was sinful. Did he reap the harvest of those corrupt seeds? Yes, he did. God brought Samson's world to a grinding halt. Pardon the pun. God gave Samson over to the Philistines when, where he was put to shame, he was enslaved, he was humiliated, he had his eyes gouged out, and he was put to hard labor by his captors. Look at Solomon. Did he sow to his flesh? Yes, he did. He multiplied wives and concubines to himself, the very thing that God explicitly said he should not do. He multiplied armies to himself, the very thing that God explicitly said he should not do. He multiplied gold and silver to himself, the very thing God explicitly said he should not do. Did Solomon reap the harvest of those corrupt seeds? Yes, he did. His heart was turned away from the Lord. And consequently, Solomon's kingdom was taken away from him. His son, Rehoboam, turned out to be a shame and disgrace to Solomon's legacy. And biblical scholars today are uncertain whether Solomon was even saved. The doubt is raised by 1 Kings, 1, uh, 1 Kings 11 verse uh, 4, which says, For it was so, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, 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 that he will also reap. And this is not only a warning, however, but it's also an encouragement. In the, same verse, Paul, in the same verse that Paul cautions about a person who sows, sows, sows to his flesh, Paul also offers encouraging consolation to the person who sows, sows, sows to the Spirit. Uh, this is the person whose life is characterized by habitual patterns of obedient submission to God. Sowing to the Spirit is not just an every now and then activity. Rather, it's the consistent and persistent walking by the Spirit and not gratifying the deeds of the flesh. And realize, a person who sows to the Spirit experiences all the same temptations, all the same sinful impulses as the person who sows to the flesh. The difference is that the person who sows to the Spirit persistently seeks to put those sinful impulses to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen to how Romans 8.13 describes this difference. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, 
You put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. The next two verses in Romans 8 go on to describe the the starting point for how the Christian puts to death the deeds of the flesh. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Note that last clause. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. This is telling us that it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to cry out to our Heavenly Father. If you have not received the Holy Spirit, dear friends, then you are not able to cry out to Abba, Father. And uh, if you're not able to cry out to Abba, Father, then you won't be able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. You won't be able to resist the sinful impulses to sow to your flesh. Why not? Well, because it's by crying out to Abba, Father, that we entreat the Lord to be merciful to us. Realize, uh, we have no right to require God to treat us as his adopted sons and daughters. Uh, We have nothing to bring to the table by which we can bargain with God to be favorable to us. The only thing we can do is to cry out for him and plead for his mercy. We're like the blind beggar in Luke 18 who cried out to Jesus as he was passing by. This blind beggar could not see Jesus. He could only hear him. He could only hear that he was passing by. Moreover, there were crowds of people surrounding Jesus, and so it was impossible that this blind beggar would be able to physically make his way over to where Jesus was in order that he can you know, embrace Jesus. Nor was this blind beggar in a position to require anything of Jesus. He could not make any demands upon Jesus. He had no right to make demands. He had nothing that he can bargain with Jesus for. But the beggar did have a voice. And he used his voice to cry out to Jesus to have mercy upon him. And when Jesus heard the beggar's cry, Jesus responded with mercy. Jesus asked him, Uh, What do you want me to do for you? And the man replied, Lord, that I may have my sight. And Jesus gave him his sight. The Psalms, brothers and sisters, are filled with examples of people crying out to God for mercy. If you feel insecure about your ability to pray, maybe you've never really prayed before, you're not sure what to say, kind of at a loss of words. I don't know how to approach God. I don't know what to say to him. I don't know how to ask. Then open the book of Psalms and start reading. Every Psalm is a prayer, which means every Psalm is instructive for how we can pray to the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with reading the Psalm and using those exact words as your own prayer to God. In fact, that's a good thing to do. A praying God's words back to him is a very good thing. So regardless of how long you've been a Christian, 
Uh, make it your regular practice to be reading and meditating upon the Psalms. And, and when you find a Psalm that expresses the thoughts and emotions that you're pr- presently experiencing, then use that Psalm as your own prayer as you cry out to Abba Father. And when you cry out, tell the Lord what you want him to do for you. In the same way that Jesus asked the blind beggar what he wanted, so your Father in heaven encourages you to make your petitions known. James 4.3 says you do not have because you do not ask. Let that sink in for a moment. You do not have because you have not asked of the Lord. You have not cried out to him, making your petitions known. Would the blind beggar have been healed of his sight if he didn't cry out to Jesus? If he just sat there on the sidelines, letting Jesus walk by without raising his voice? So ask, cry out to your heavenly father and ask him to cleanse you from your sins. If you want to use a Psalm for this request for cleansing, then Psalm 51 is an excellent choice. This psalm serves as an excellent prayer for any person who's seeking the Lord's forgiveness. It begins, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. If you pray this with a heart of faith, a heart that believes God hears and receives your petition because, not because you're bargaining with him, not because you have the right to make any demands of him, but because of the intercessory work of Jesus Christ, your Lord, then God will answer your prayer. His answer will be to wash you and make you whiter than snow. He will hide his face from your sins and he will blot out all of your iniquities. He will put joy and gladness in your heart and he will fill you with the joy of salvation and uphold you by the power of his Holy Spirit. That, dear friends, is how you'll be empowered to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And that's how you will gain the ability to sow, sow, sow to the Spirit. Now, perhaps some of you are wondering if it's possible for Christians to sow to their flesh. And if so, whether the Lord will make you reap a harvest of corruption. Well, the answer uh, to both of these questions is um, a qualified yes. Uh, Christians are capable of sowing to the flesh. And yes, uh, the Lord uh, might make you reap a harvest of corruption, uh, even as a Christian, but only in this mortal life. That's important. That's an important distinction. The Lord might make us reap uh, the temporal consequences of our sin in this mortal life, but never, ever will we reap the, corru- the consequences of our sin, the corruption of uh, a corrupt harvest uh, as the eternal consequences of our sin in the afterlife. Why not? Because Jesus already reaped that harvest for us. Jesus already bore that penalty for us. But we do have the ability to sin, and we do, uh, we will, in many ways, suffer the immediate, temporal, this worldly consequences of, the, of our sins. 
Take Samson as an example. I mentioned him a few minutes ago as somebody who sowed to the flesh. His relationship with Delilah was characterized by sin. Um, yet Samson is listed in Hebrews 11.32 as one of the saints of God. Samson is listed in the, in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 as one of the saints of God. Verse 32 says he's one of the saints who, through faith, worked righteousness and, and obtained promises. That's talking about Samson. He, he worked righteousness and obtained promises, which is to say Samson was regenerate. Samson was a believer. Nevertheless, he sowed to his flesh and God saw fit to make him reap the temporal consequences of his sin. When everything was going well in Samson's life, he didn't continue to cry out to God. That was his problem. That was his downfall. Instead, he frequently lived in security of his own strength, sowing to the flesh while thinking very little of God. But when God caused Samson to reap the temporal consequences of having sown to his flesh, that's when Samson was brought back to the place where he cried out to God again, where he cried out to Abba Father to have mercy upon him. It was in his humiliation, in his shame, in his disgrace that Samson remembered his need for God's mercy. We are no different from Samson. Uh, the challenge that that we face as Christians is to be habitually sowing to the Spirit. We might sow to the Spirit for a little while, but we don't always sow, sow, sow to the Spirit. And when we begin to sow to our flesh, God graciously permits us to reap some of the disagreeable consequences of our sin. Why? So we'll remember our ongoing need to always be crying out to our Heavenly Father for His life-sustaining mercy. What we need to acknowledge is that God is being gracious to us when he lets us feel the temporal weight of, the, of our sin in this world. Uh, it's how he corrects us, how he, how he draws us back into a proper dependent relationship upon him. As the good shepherd, he uses his, his hooked staff to pull us away from the cliff, and he uses his rod to to steer us and direct us where we ought to go. It's in gratitude for these corrective measures that we pray Psalm 23 to him. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. They may not be pleasant, but the rod and staff comfort us. It's a comfort to know that our Heavenly Father won't let any of his children wander away from him. Matthew 18, 12 what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he leave the 99 and, and goes to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 who did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father. Is it not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish? Even so, it is not the will of your Father that one of these little ones should perish. And Luke 15, 8, very similar. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, 
there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Christian life is not easy, brothers and sisters. We always need to live in dependence on God rather than depending on ourselves. We always need to be crying out to God for his provision of strength. We always need to be walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. We always need to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We always need to be confessing our failings and turning away from our sin. We always need to be growing in our relationship with our triune God. We always need to be loving each other and edifying one another. We always need to be pursuing the things that make for peace. We understand by all of this and, and many more uh, uh, commands from Scripture that our faith must be an active faith. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Why? That we may walk in them, that we should walk in them. Sowing, sowing, sowing to the Spirit, therefore, requires stamina. It requires perseverance. And this is why verse 9 of our sermon text exhorts us not to grow weary or lose heart. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. One of the effective means that the Lord has given to you to not grow weary while doing good is to observe his gift of the weekly Sabbath rest. More on spiritual failure uh, in Christians often is connected with emotional and physical fatigue. Uh, you weren't designed to work seven days a week, brothers and sisters. You weren't designed to always be on the go, going from this place to that place, from this party to that party, from this activity to that activity. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. And why was the Sabbath made for man? For your rest and restoration. God says in Isaiah 58 verse 11 that it was made for satisfying your soul in drought and strengthening your bones. It's so that you can be like a watered garden and a spring of water whose waters do not fail. The Lord goes on in verses 13 and 14 to promise, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your business on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own business or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Do you hear those promises, brothers and sisters? Do you hear the blessing that God is promising to those who honor and observe the Sabbath rest? That, dear friends, is how you do not grow weary and lose heart. That is how you continue steadfast through trials and adversities. If you want to reap the reward spoken about in our sermon text, you must persevere to the end. But God has not left you to do this in your own strength. He has given you his means of grace so that you can persevere. Don't neglect his faithful provision. Don't despise what he has given to you as a blessing. The harvest will come. 
It will come at the time determined by the will and plan of God. In due season, Paul promises that those who persevere in doing good will reap their reward. And it won't be long, dear friends. Jesus assures us that it won't be long in Revelation 22, verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So establish your hearts, brothers and sisters. Establish them in our triune God. Cry out to your heavenly Father, asking him to be merciful to you, and don't grow weary while doing good. Make full use of the Lord's means of grace so that you can continue sowing, sowing, sowing to the Spirit. Amen. And let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.